0: Well, it's good to be back, church. I, uh, I enjoyed getting a little break, but man, it's uh, really great to be back. And actually, I debated whether I would tell you this or not, but uh, kind of an in- inauspicious uh, return this morning. I was literally I was walking out of my house and I sneezed. So I'm walking out of my house and I pulled a muscle in my back. I was like, seriously, <laughs> man, wow, that's so pathetic. Um, but you know, I'm upright, I'm standing, and um, I thought I'd give you a little uh, sabbatical update. Um, uh, first sabbatical I took, actually set it aside to finish my dissertation, and that was miserable. You know, it, wasn't like, it wasn't sabbatically at all, it wasn't restful at all, so I decided on the second one that, uh, this is the third that I've taken, this recent one, but the second one I said, you know, what really refreshes me is to, to get out and see what is, what is God doing through his church in the world, and so uh, second sabbatical, Chris McGuffey and Blake and I went to Turkey, and we just saw what, uh, you know, what's the work going on there. It was super refreshing, so third sabbatical, I thought, you know, I just need to get out again, See what's going on in, in the church in the world. So Chris and I went to uh, Cambridge, England, and I want to tell you a, f- a few stories about the uh, first week. So first seven days of my sabbatical, we were in, in Cambridge, England. And first story I'm going to tell you, actually, it's kind of a downer, but uh, trust me, then the rest of the stories are going to kind of turn the corner. Um, but uh, first uh, second night, first free night that we had, we went to a church service. We tried to get in as many church services as we could, and in Cambridge, there are church services going on like every night. Right, all all across town, very, very traditional. A lot of uh, a lot of Anglican churches all over the place. Lot every college. There are thirty-two colleges. Like every college has a chapel, and they're running services every evening. So, uh, first free night that we had, we went to a church. uh, It's there on the right, and um, I will tell you, we we walked out like really sad. It was just there were just a few people there, and it it was just really kind of dead. Um, As we were walking in, they handed us uh, the liturgy and a hymnal, and uh, if you're from a liturgical background, this may not sound unusual to you, but I'm not. Uh, They handed us a liturgy that they do uh, the same liturgy three or four times a week, every week, the entire year, as do all of the other churches, three or four times a week, every week, the entire year. Uh, There was actually, I mean, literally, there was nothing that was off of the script at all. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, that'd make Sundays a lot easier for me. (laughs) But, um, man, there was just just no joy, enthusiasm, and and Chris and I walked out, we're like, ugh. That was uh, kind of a downer. Um, However, when we first got there, we were greeted by this uh, couple. I guess they were about 40 years old, and they had their son with them. He was about nine years old. And they just, they honestly seemed kind of out of place. They're really joyful, enthusiastic. They handed us our, the hymnal, they handed us the liturgy. Uh, they they uh, talked to us on the way out. And we're like, man, you know, they just they didn't really like, seem like a, a part of that, that whole church moment. And we were discussing that. We, we uh, went to a restaurant, sat down, and having this conversation. And as we were in the middle of that conversation, that same couple walked in. And so we said, hey, why don't you guys sit down and join us for dinner? So they sat down, and we began talking with them, and we discovered that they're just like super on-fire believers following Jesus. And that was their first night to ever go to that church. Their son is nine. He loves to sing in choirs, and for, them, for him to sing in the choir, they have to get on this rotation where they hand out the hymnal and they hand out the liturgy, but they had never actually even been there before. And we discovered that, I mean, they, they, they actually had attended Cambridge. They met as they were students in Cambridge. Uh, trusted Christ, then began walking with the Lord. They now uh, attend their little village church, and they, they left their their you know really enthusiastic church for this little village church in order, in a sense, really to be missionaries out there. There were n- no young families. Their son was the only kid in that church. In the last year and a half, they recruited five new families with all of their kids, and so they're all serving together. You know, And there's life coming back to their church, which began uh, in 1200 A.D., all right? Awesome, Just awesome, enthusiastic followers of Jesus. We discovered that the husband, his name is Jonathan, wife is uh, Dot, and uh, their son Samuel. We discovered that Jonathan is actually a trustee with the um, Keswick movement. And if you're not familiar with Keswick, that's a a spiritual life movement. It it started like uh, late 1800s, and they have had a conference every year since then. So for over 100 years, they've had a spiritual life conference about... Ten years into it, it took on this missions emphasis and they began uh, recruiting and praying for and sending people out to the nations for like the last hundred years. And we've discovered Jonathan is actually a trustee of this movement that's been going on for a hundred years. So, you know, really, really wonderful conversation with them. They asked about our church and said, well, give us the website, gave them the website. And apparently Jonathan got online just to find out if we were legit and, uh, you know, listened to one of my messages because then two nights later he said, well, why don't you guys come over for dinner? He just called us out of the blue, and uh, he came and picked us up, took us to their home, and they'd invited another couple, another young couple, who had helped them begin their walk with the Lord, and then this gentleman, he was about 70, his wife was out of town, but he came by himself, and we sat at their dinner table, and we talked about Jesus for five hours. It was awesome. Uh, you know, literally, it came to the end of the, the time, and uh, Johnson said, said, I think I better get you guys back. And I thought we'd been sitting there maybe an hour and a half, two hours. And I looked at my watch, and I'm like, oh my gosh. They were talking about uh, their walks with the Lord, their friends that they're sharing with. They have neighborhood block parties. There's, their little cul-de-sac has five families, and they're sharing the gospel with them. And... Uh, the, uh, the 70-year-old guy, he, he works with Samaritan's Purse and he helps arrange you know, aid that goes out and evangelistic stuff. And then the other couple, they were getting in this discussion debate about best uh, apologetics and evangelistic methods in this post-Christian era in which they live. And I mean, it was just a just wonderful conversation. What was interesting is at the very end, um, the other gentleman, not the 70-year-old guy, the 40-year-old guy, he said, You know, I'm, I'm so glad that I came. Because I really, I didn't think I, I didn't think I, I wanted to come this evening. Because my father passed away this morning. That's a conversation stopper, right? So we just stopped in that moment. We had this really rich time of prayer for him, and for the other families and this gentleman. And uh, Chris and I walked out. and we We're like, that's that's koinonia, right? That's fellowship. It that was, it was wonderful. And we saw these, these little signs of life everywhere. In fact, uh, later in the week, we went to a second church service there on the left. That's um, St. Andrew the Great. Stag is the abbreviation for that church. And that is, it's a university family church. They're right across from one of the colleges. They have six full-time people on staff that are reaching out to the university. They've already planted one church. They're starting their second church plant. In August, they've got a core group that's going out. They support missionaries. I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh, man, your vision is so much like ours. In fact, I wrote down, their vision statement is this, the gospel to Cambridge and gospel workers to the world. I go, yes, <laughs> that's awesome. You know, so there are these little little wonderful moments where we just saw that there's, there's life in the church. We, we went on a um, religious heritage tour. That's on the right. There are tour guide's His name is John. John's a retired school teacher, and the reason he does these tours, he doesn't get any money for him is so that he can share the gospel, because several times a week he has a captive audience, and so he was stopping here and presenting the gospel, and he figured out uh, a little ways into the tour what Chris McGuffey and I do, and so at one point he goes, now, uh, do you gentlemen have anything that you'd like to add? <laughs> so, here we go. So we presented the gospel as whole whole tour group there that, you know, he's like, I have a captive audience, and I can share the gospel every week to these people. It was was awesome. Um, We stayed in a place called Ridley Hall. It's one of the colleges there, and so we got to interact with uh, these essentially seminary students at Ridley Hall. These are all folks who are training to become priests in the Anglican Church, and they're kind of all over the map theologically. uh, Some are very traditional uh, some are a little more liberal, some are a little more conservative, but we met a group who are, uh, they're what's called, uh, in the Anglican Church, they're pioneers. They're going out and they're going to be planting new churches. And one guy in particular, he's a f- actually a friend of Chris McGuffey, his name is Andy Atkins. And uh, Andy is going to go plant a church among Pakistanis in London. Right? That's, his, that's his vision. But what was interesting is we're interacting with these students, you know, they're telling us about the work that they do and... Uh, their churches and different things, and they ask about ours, and, and you know, honestly, it felt it was a little uncomfortable at that moment because for them, a large church is 100 people. That's a big one, maybe 200. There are a couple churches around that have 300 people, but you know, by and large, it's just they just don't they just don't see what we see. And as we're describing what we see, you know, any any given Sunday in our town, there are thousands of people who are in churches worshiping. You know, every week, Breakaway's got. 8 to 10,000 students who are showing up to worship and you've got Campus Crusade and Navigators and InterVarsity, you know, and, and and all of these groups who are who are making disciples and you see this incredible revival and as we describe it they're just they're like they can't even fathom what's going on. But I reminded them. I said, but you know, this happened also at Cambridge. There was a period of time and it corresponded around the same time as the Keswick movement began that God created revival on the college campus. I don't know if you've ever read the the story of the Cambridge Seven or C.T. Studs biography, but if you haven't, you should. There were seven Cambridge University students. God grabbed a hold of their heart, and they decided they were just going to live for the Lord. And so they decided that they would give their lives to those who've never heard the gospel before. Their friends rallied around them and supported them. And as they were preparing to leave, everywhere that they went, thousands of people would show up to listen to them speak. I mean, it was just an incredible time of revival. And I said, you know, we may be living here in you know, this, our little corner of the world, College Station, Texas where we have to acknowledge what's happening here is, is a result of the movement of the Spirit of God. It's not because we're clever or we're good at what we do. It's, it's the Spirit of God that, that is causing people to want to share the gospel with their friends and their family, to want to, to leave things behind and to go to different cities and to reinvigorate churches or plant churches or go throughout the nations. That's the movement of the Spirit of God. It's a stewardship for us that we get to be a part of that. But I said, you know, God could do that again at Cambridge. That's what you need to be praying for and, and, and seeking after. And so one of the things, you know, every place that Guff and I have gone on missions things is, you know, we say, look, God's given us a stewardship. So we we begin to ask, is there, can we help? Or is there anything that we can do? Are there resources we can send, you know, or people we could send? How could we support what you're doing? And interestingly, if I can take you back to uh, Andy Atkins. Andy, uh, who's going to go plant the church among Pakistanis, he was previously the um, campus ministry director for England. And then he stepped out of that position and he became campus ministry uh, director just for Cambridge. But then he resigned that position because he wants to go plant churches among Pakistanis. So uh, another couple is going to come and take Andy's place. And uh, they're actually from Grace Bible Church. Yeah, didn't know that, did you? Um, The husband was uh, an Aggie. And then he went through college ministry with us. He did an internship here at Grace Bible Church, went to seminary. Then he ran our partnership in Greece and now he's back at AM, but he and his wife are going to go and lead the team at Cambridge. It's uh, Jerry and Suzanne Barguise, who uh, first, first service, they were sitting right here in the front row, so I made them stand up. I actually told them last night, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to put your picture up. You okay with that? Uh, I'm actually not asking. I want to, I want I, I just, because to me, it's such an amazing story, right? So there was, there was this revival in Cambridge, and they're sending people out to the nations. Cambridge was one of the centers of the Reformation. Movement in England. Now it's it's very post Christian, and Christians are struggling to know how to live for Jesus in this culture. And now we, who are in the midst of this, I would say, sustained revival at Texas A and M, we get to send back and resource, and our little church gets to send a couple who are going to lead the movement there. It's, it's a, what a what a wonderful and beautiful opportunity. So we know uh, one of the ways that we get to partner with. Uh, Cambridge University, and uh, send one of our own to lead the movement there. So I just thought that was pretty amazing, pretty cool. So uh, there's you know a little uh, couple of stories about sabbatical. That's just the first seven days. The the last uh, three weeks, I came back and I intentionally tried to be unproductive. You know, for me, um, if if you know me at all, that's that's really difficult. Like I'm my mind, I'm always thinking about the next thing, and I have a hard time stopping and celebrating and being in the moment and um, I think it's particularly difficult, too, sometimes for people who are pastors and teach a lot. Every time I come to the Word, my lens is, is a sermon, so I'm reading it to think about how it applies to you, <laughs> rather than reading it for me. You know, Lord, what is it that you have to speak to me? And so what I wanted to do in those three weeks is just, so let me get back to kind of fundamentals. Lord, what are, you, what are you speaking to me? Where are you guiding me? What's your calling on, on my life? And um, not surprisingly, this often happens to me in January, I was just reminded that uh, I really need to grow in prayer. Or do, I, do, I really, do I really communicate well and deeply with the Father? And so what I would like for us to do, since this is what I have been doing personally, is I want to talk for the next four weeks about prayer. So I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, best place to go back to uh, Lord's prayer, and we'll kind of move out from there. But next four weeks, we're going to be in the Lord's prayer, and we're going to be talking about prayer. So Matthew chapter six is where we're going to be. Uh, I want to start there with an illustration. Uh, have you ever uh, spoken with a newborn? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of unproductive, isn't it? Right, but but you can tell they they want to communicate, and they need to communicate. But they don't really know how to communicate well. And you get a few weeks and then a few months in and they begin to start to make sounds. You know, single syllable grunts and groans that are that are a, a little more specific. And then they put together a few words and then finally sentences begin to form. And, you know, what's, what's happening is this desire, this longing, this need to communicate what they're thinking and feeling. Uh, it, it's not inborn how to do that. The desire and the longing and the need is there, but, but not the actual ability. And so what happens is they begin to imitate. But they, they watch, and they, they listen, and they learn, and we give little moments of instruction to our children. And slowly, gradually, and then sometimes by quick leaps, their capacity to think deeper thoughts and communicate deeper thoughts grows and develops, and they become... Mature. We become mature. We all actually started in exactly the same place. Born with this longing, this desire, and this need to communicate, but not with the ability to do so. And it's the same with our prayer life. we're born again into the family of God, and we think that we should be able to communicate with God because we're mature people. We know how to communicate with one another. But in a sense, it's an entirely new language. We really don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. And, you know, Jesus, when he was uh, forming his His core team his disciples one of his primary objectives i would argue his primary practically was to teach them how to pray right and you recall he had these 12 and they followed him around everywhere and they saw him do miracles and they heard him teach and they heard him get into arguments and debates and discussions and he did uh, apologetics and unpacked the word and all that but uh, you know they never asked him to teach them how to preach they did say though jesus did you teach us how to pray which is truly remarkable because they had been raised in this prayer culture. Right? Prayers at home that they had to learn from their parents and memorize. And then prayers in the synagogues from scribes and Pharisees and priests. And so they're just surrounded by prayer their whole life. And then they heard Jesus pray and they go, um, never mind. <laughs> we don't really know anything about prayer. Because Jesus, when you pray, there's, there's this depth, there's this intimacy that you have with the Father that we don't have. So if you could teach us one thing, Jesus, would you please teach us how to pray? So they, they watched him, and they modeled after him, and he instructed them so they could learn to go deep with the Father. And what I want us to focus on in the next four weeks is simply that. God, teach us through Jesus how to pray. Let us be humble enough to acknowledge we don't know really your language. We're learning your language, but in so many respects, we're just, we're just infants. We're just saying single syllables in short sentences, and we need to learn your language. So I want us to look at uh, Lord's Prayer. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 6, and let's read together verse 5. Jesus said this, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus assumes that they are praying, but that they're not praying well. He says, when you pray, I know that you're praying, but when you pray, don't pray like this. And he gives them two specific exhortations. He says, first, when you pray, don't pray for show. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites. And, and you all, he says, you all know who they are because they, they stand on the street corners. They rise up in the synagogues. And when they're praying, they're actually praying for public consumption, They're they're really missing the point of prayer. They're going through this external religious practice to demonstrate to the world that somehow they're more spiritual than others, but that's not the point of prayer. He calls them hypocrites, which in Greek literature literally was the actor who would come out onto stage holding a mask in front of his face, and then he would go backstage and get another mask and come out as another character, and the mask represented not reality, not not the person, but a character that was being played. And he said, that's how many people in the culture around you, that you admire, that's how they're praying. It's just a mask. It's not true of the inner reality that is inside of them. So when you pray, don't pray like this. Don't, in fact, pray for show. So context here is the Sermon on the Mount, right? We're in chapter 6. This is the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount He's, in a sense, expositing for them the essential nature of righteousness according to the law. It's it's an exposition of the law, but he's not teaching as the scribes and the Pharisees taught them, who taught them that righteousness was keeping the list of rules. A few things that you do, but mostly things that you don't do. Righteousness was evaluated by external standards, and the Pharisees held the standard and Jesus says, no, you're missing the true nature of the law and why God gave the law. It was to drive you to a deeper understanding of righteousness, which is what happens inside your heart. Are you merciful toward those who need mercy? Are you kind toward those who are hurting? Do you bear up under persecution when you're pursuing genuine righteousness this is a matter of the heart it'll be reflected in the things that you say and the things that you do but fundamentally it is your character and so he finishes that section chapter 5 with these words chapter 5 verse 48 he says therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect you know what you know what righteousness is it's the character of God it's the glory of God it's the heart of God you know what righteousness is you're like God in all of your affections, the things that you love and long for and pursue and chase down, how you spend your time and your money and your behavior and your speech is just a reflection of what you truly love. And God's standard of righteousness flows out of the heart, but you live in a culture that measures righteousness simply by a list of external standards. So you see somebody standing on the street corner, and he's right—he's lengthened the tassels on his prayer garment, and he's broadened the box, the phylactery that contains a verse so people go, Oh, wow, that's a big box. It must be really spiritual. I said, you're missing the point. That's not spirituality. That's not righteousness. God doesn't care about that at all. He doesn't care. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore beware of practicing your righteousness in front of people to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And he gives them three illustrations from the three kind of fundamental righteous practices of that day, which were giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And he says, essentially, God gave you each of these practices so that they would give you moments to connect personally with God so that he could transform your heart. They're not about people watching you and saying, wow, you give a lot, you pray a lot you fast a lot. That's not the point. And so he condemns the typical practice of each of these and he transforms them. Look at chapter six, verse two. He says, so then when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. He says, when you give, don't go, (laughs) I'm about to give. And the more I give, the louder I blow the trumpet, right? And they would put their coins into the copper receptacles. The more coins, the more noise. Jesus uh, had another moment, remember, with his disciples. And a man came in, and he's just pouring in the change. And then this widow kind of sneaks in and drops in one coin. And he says, "You, you know, she gave more. What? Because righteousness flows from the heart. She gave out of her poverty and out of her love for me, not to be seen by you. When you give to the poor, when you pray, verse 5, don't be like the hypocrites because they love to stand and they love to pray in the synagogues and in front, on the street corners where people have gathered so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. What really matters to God is the heart. And prayer is a moment, it's an opportunity for us to connect genuinely with our heart to the Lord. So first he addresses their motives, and then second he addresses the theology of their prayer. He says, don't pray without understanding. Verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words, so then do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Now, when I was in high school, I was playing in soccer, uh, on the soccer team, and our, our coach would ask one of the players to lead in prayer before every game. So what that meant was that prayer, player got to start the Lord's Prayer. Right? So we'd all gather around, we're all huddled up, and that prayer, pl- player who selected to lead us in prayer would say, Our Father, right? And as soon as the player said, Our Father, everybody jumps in and says, And this is Texas, right? So you, you know, we're, we can do this. So he goes, Our Father, and we all go, Our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And as we began to say the Lord's Prayer together, it went something like this. It goes, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be. Ah, let's kill him. I'm like, we never even finished saying the Lord's Prayer because it was more like, it's like a war cry, really. And I remember, even as a high school student, I thought, that just doesn't seem like probably what Jesus had in mind, right? So I go back and I read it again. And it, it, it's, you know, it says, don't use meaningless repetition, right? I mean, if there's one prayer that you shouldn't use that way, it's that prayer. So he selected me. One week he said, hey, Brian, why don't you lead us in prayer? I go, okay, I got this. So we all huddle up, and I said, Jesus. <laughs> and I just kind of, a corner of my eye, he just stopped and he stared at me. I said, Jesus, protect us as we play. Protect the other team from injury as well. Maybe we honor you in everything that we do and say amen. Okay, then. <laughs> just dead quiet, right? I never got asked again. To, because uh, I didn't leave the war cry, right? Our Father. Jesus says, that's just bad theology. Why? Because that's the way that the nations around you pray. Israel had always been surrounded by pagan nations, and Jesus' day, they're occupied by Rome. And all of these nations had a, a very low view of deity, their gods were just like people. But more powerful. And so they had to, in a sense, manipulate them through prayer. That was the point of prayer and the offerings. It was a manipulation process. But the problem was this that sometimes their gods, since they were really a lot like people, would take a nap. They'd fall asleep. Or they'd go on a vacation. And so you had to yell really loudly and you had to yell long. You had to, you know, high volume, lots of words to make sure you got their attention. Uh, In fact, remember when Elijah is battling the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? He says to them, he says, hey, why don't you yell a little louder? I'll let you go first. And you better keep going because your God, Baal, says he might have gone into you know, this dark, quiet room, which means, I mean, really, it means he's, he's, my, he's probably in the bathroom. He's, he's on the pot. You know, so what did they do? So they start jumping around and yelling, and they're cutting themselves and bleeding all over the place. He says, yell louder. Yell louder. He's asleep. He's on vacation. He's going to the bathroom. I mean, it's really graphic in Hebrew. He is he's just totally mocking them. Bad theology. Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray like that, because that's not who God is. Right? Don't, don't just use meaningless repetition, that is, words without thinking. Because you don't have to badger God. You don't have to badger him. Right? That's, relationships of intimacy don't work that way. Hopefully, if you're married, you, you have figured this out, right? Imagine if I come home every evening and I walk through the front door. I say, hey, Tristy, I love you. What's for, what's for dinner? 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 Right? And I get louder and I start jumping around. Hey, what's for dinner? And every night I come home and I do exactly the same thing. I'm just telling you, I don't think she'd appreciate it. I haven't tried it. I'm not going to test it. But it doesn't make for depth in the relationship. She doesn't need to be badger- badgered because she loves me. Right? And this is what Jesus is saying. And before there's a word on your tongue, your Heavenly Father knows it. And he longs to do good for you. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him. The nature of prayer is intimate relationship. And the one to whom we are praying is a heavenly father who longs to give good gifts to us. So Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray like this. Instead, pray this way. Chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, instead when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Jesus says, first pray sincerely. What's the opposite of hypocrisy? What's sincerity? Remember uh, the, 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 old, the image that comes from this sincere, it's a Latin word, means without wax, and it's been proposed that. The word came from this origin that people would go into the marketplace and they would buy pottery, but an unscrupulous vendor might have a pot that had broken, and so he would put wax in the cracks and then paint it over, and the only way you would know is if you held it up to the sun, right? So without wax. Or in Greek, it's literally judged by the sun is the word for sincerity. And what God wants for us is really simple. Just be honest. Nothing you say shocks him. What you think is deepest and darkest and hid furthest from the Lord and from others, it's known by God because he sees all things. So pray sincerely, pray honestly, pray truthfully. Um, let me illustrate. My um, my son tells me that I, I don't actually understand the nature of relationship between guys and girls these days. okay, okay. Um, But I'm, I'm humble, please teach me. <laughs> about how these things actually work these days. There's probably a lot that I don't understand. And because, you know, I'm looking at this, this relationship you're describing between these friends of yours, this guy and this girl, and and I, I would call that dating. And you know, he says, no, that they're not they're not dating, they're talking. I go, okay, they're talking, but so these, these people over here, their dating is no, they're not even talking yet, right? Because something happens before talking, which happens before dating, But but they are actually talking, talking, right? I mean, like they see one another once in a while and they exchange words, so they're talking. Is yeah, well, they're talking, but they're not talking. And I go, okay, I think that. And these people are not, they're not dating, but they're talking, right? So they're literally talking. Well, sometimes no, sometimes they're, they're talking, but they're actually not talking. But they're talking. That's where they are, and they'll get to this place where they, they move past. Talking into dating, I go. Okay, well, you know, <laughs> I think I think you're just describing the same process, but you know, using different words. So let me just sum up for you what I think is happening here, because what I, how I would describe is this: all the entire spectrum, all of of American dating is basically just selective deceit. Okay, right? It's just selective deceit. So what you do all along this the spectrum is you put forth this kind of edited version of who you really are, and you try to trick this person long enough that they'll say, yes, I will marry you, and then the truth comes out, right? That's, you know, you go, oh my gosh, you were so cynical. Yeah, I really am deeply, I'm deeply cynical about all this. But my point is actually not dating. My point is this. Don't pray like you date. That's it. That's all I'm trying to say. Don't pray like you date. Because you don't need to put forth this edited version before the Lord because he actually knows all things. He knows all things. And yet he loves you in spite of that and through that because of Jesus Christ. I want to share with you a little bit of a a quote that I pulled from uh, Frederick Buechner. I found this a few years ago. He wrote a short book. It's called Telling Secrets. And he said this. The human family has all the same secrets which are both very telling. That is, they tell something important about us They're also very important for us to tell. They're telling in the sense that they tell what is perhaps the central paradox of our condition. That what we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness and yet that is often what we also fear more than anything else. Do you get that? That's our paradox. What we really deeply want and what we need is to be known. It's also what we fear the most. How will people respond if they actually know? And so, he says, we put forth to the world, this highly edited version to ourself. He said, the problem is this. If that's the only version that you ever put forth and you ever think about, then you start to actually believe that. And so once in a while, you have to stop and tell the truth to yourself and you have to tell it to God. So you don't actually just believe the edited version. You have to be sincere, genuine, honest, right? So that you can be fully known, right? And then be transformed. So what does the Lord want from us when we pray? Is he worried about our frustrations and our angers and our fears? Is he shocked by that sin we think that no one saw? None of that. None of that shocks him whatsoever. Instead, because of Jesus Christ, he welcomes us into his presence. So, pray sincerely. Second, pray humbly. Pray humbly. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 18 with me. Listen to this parable. You probably have read this a few times, but it's... Very powerful and applicable here. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke starts with commentary. He says he also told this parable to some people. So there's some people standing around. He's telling it to these people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous because they had made righteousness a list of behaviors, external standards that they could keep. So they thought that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he was praying this way to himself. See the irony, right? What's prayer? Prayer is this communication between me and God. But he's praying to himself for others to see. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even, he opens his eyes like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The self-righteous, the hypocrite, stands and prays. He lifts up his face toward heaven. He looks out around him and judges others. He's in an arrogant posture, even with his body before the Lord. But the humble man comes before the Lord and he bows his head. He gets on his knees. He falls on his face before the Lord. And he expresses his unworthiness to be in the Lord's presence. And he rejoices that God welcomes him there. It says in Psalm chapter 5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence before you. I will acknowledge, God, you're great. And you're awesome and you're mighty. And I don't have the right to come before you, but I come because of Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this. There is, in fact, just one God, and there is one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And what that tells us is this we don't, in and of ourselves, have standing before God. We don't have the right to come into the presence of God. In fact, when you see people move into God's presence and they get just a little glimpse of the glory of God, what happens? Boy, they fall on their face. They're, they're in fear. They, they realize they could just be annihilated and obliterated by the beauty and the power and the awesomeness of the glory of God. It's a frightening thing. God is perfect, and we're not. He's holy, and we're sinful. And yet we have, we're told boldness and confident access in Hebrews chapter 4 because we have a mediator that is we have one who's standing between us and God that is Jesus Christ and he's saying to his father father welcome Brian into your presence he is your son because I purchased him with my blood so that he could become part of our family welcome him in and the father reaches out and he embraces us and he welcomes us in as sons and daughters because of Jesus and you realize that in fact for all of eternity that's how we'll enter the presence of the Lord we don't have standing we don't have inherent righteousness in ourselves. What we possess is the righteousness of Christ and it's his righteousness that gives us access into the presence of God because he's removed that debt of sin that separated us and we have life that lasts forever with God through Christ. So for all of eternity we will come boldly and confidently into the throne of grace because of Jesus which means we'll always come humbly because we're all leveled in front of the cross. We're all unrighteous And we're sinful people and in need of the cross equally. And so we bend before the cross. And you know what God does for people who bow before him? He lifts them up. He says, Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time and through the proper way, which is through Jesus Christ. And so all of us, it doesn't matter our our station in life or what we think is a relative morality to the people around us, we will always come through Jesus Christ, and that's the beauty of the gospel. So we pray humbly, even as we pray boldly. Third, Jesus says pray secretly. Turn back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6. Jesus says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, And your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Jesus is not ruling out public prayer. What he's saying is this. The nature of prayer is communication between that person and God. It's just a personal relationship. So the bulk of your time in prayer is private. It's just you and the Lord. Jesus prayed a lot. And most of his prayer time, it was him going alone. He would spend a night just by himself in prayer. He also prayed at times with his disciples around him. Other times he would just stand up in the middle of a conversation, right? He Talking to his disciples, and he felt like praying to the Lord and saying, so Father, I thank you that you listen to me. And you know, so he did public prayer. But the point was he spent a lot of time just on his own. Just on his own. Listening to the voice of the Father, crying out, Sometimes, in fact, saying the same words over and over, but not mindlessly, three times in the garden, asking, take this cup from me, take this cup from me, please take this cup from me, crying out in loud anguish and sometimes quietly. The point was the attitude of his heart, and the point was he spent a lot of time just on his own, quietly listening to the Father, because that's transformative. So what I want us to do uh, this week, we're going to start kind of, in a sense, trying to build new habits, I want you to set aside uh, 30 minutes two times this week. Okay, some of you, this may be, well, I already do that. I'm, I'm, you know, seven days a week, I pray an hour and a half. I go, man, awesome. You preach next week. <laughs> you get to step into this place. But for some of us, we just need to take one step forward. And so I want to say 30 minutes two times this week. If you keep your calendar on your phone, then I encourage you to take your phone out right now and Put that moment in that you're going to find a quiet place. Think about where you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, so you won't be distracted. Put an alarm on that appointment so it'll go off and give you time to get to that place because what we need to do is we need to build these habits into our lives that force us into these moments where God can speak to us. So 30 minutes a day, two times this week, I want you to pray boldly and I want you to pray specifically and I want, to, I want you to write down what you pray. Okay? And as we do that, over the next four weeks, let's see what God says to us, how he speaks. Maybe he, he will answer. Maybe he'll say, wait. Maybe he'll say, no. Maybe we won't hear it all. But maybe in that process, we'll learn more about who God is and what it means to listen to him and how to communicate with him. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk as well about um, what are those barriers, right, that keep us from these moments Why should we pray? You know, Jesus actually ends this section here by saying, uh, you know, your father knows what you need before you even ask him, so don't badger him, which I find really comforting in one respect, but also a little bit perplexing, right? If he already knows, why do I ask? And I want to talk a little bit more about that. And I want you to begin to read what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is in a sense really the disciples' prayer. He's telling the disciples, here's how you should pray. And I don't mind us repeating it together, but really it's a pattern prayer. It kind of lays out God's priorities for us to pray. And so I'd like for you to read it in each of those 30-minute sessions and then maybe taking some notes that help you think through what are the principles of prayer that I learned from this particular prayer. Right, so as we close, what I'd like for us to do is this. Uh, I want you to bow your heads and I want to take a few moments and quietly before the Lord, let's, um, let's be willing to humble ourselves and say, God, you know, there, there probably are a few things that I need to learn about speaking to you and listening to you so I pray that in these next few weeks uh, you would teach me as you taught the disciples how to pray so just take a few moments quietly before the Lord uh, and then I will close us Heavenly Father I pray that you'd protect us from being insecure people who care about uh, how others evaluate our, our spirituality and our righteousness I pray that you'd cause us to deeply care about our hearts being transformed before you, about genuine righteousness becoming like you. Father, I pray that you'd protect us from pride and deceit, that we would be willing to be open and honest and truthful before you. I pray that uh, we would continue to learn to cry out even when we have felt disappointed that you haven't answered or spoken when we want you to or how we've wanted you to. I pray that in this process you would deepen our love and our trust and our confidence in you. I pray that you would humble us before you, that we would would genuinely approach you in these next few weeks as people who, who want to learn and want to grow. I pray that as you stretch us, Father, you'd stretch our hearts for the things that you love and that matter to you most. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, don't forget the specifics of your assignment because I'll ask you next week how it's going. All right, guys have a great week. See you next week.